Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. I'm joined as always by Alicia Preston, a commentator, analyst, and political consultant, and Paul Hodes, a former two-term U.S. congressman. Folks, we have a lot going on. I, You know, the, the, the kind of like, well, this is a lot to deal with. I feel like this week, We've got a lot to deal with. Breaking news, of course, over the course of the weekend was Senator Joe Manchin's refusal to go any further on the long-promised, much-worked-upon Build Back Better agenda. I just want to start with a high-level question about this. What on earth should Democrats do next about this? Alicia Preston, you're, I mean, obviously this is a Republican perspective, but honestly, what's, what's your analysis? What's, what's your take on this? What should the Democrats be thinking about and doing next? They should be thinking about how to get something done. And to do that, it has to be a bill that's feasible. This massive package is not feasible. It won't be if they try it again in January or February or March. I think with the Democrats and, and yay, Joe Manchin, not just for the obvious reasons of um, saying he would vote against this monstrosity, but also for standing up and saying, I represent my people. I don't represent my party first. And I think that was actually a very noble thing to do. And we can discuss that more later. But, you know, if the, Demo- the Democrats have to do something if they want to have a list of achievements going into 2022, I think what they should do is take this bill, this monstrosity, pull it apart and take every sector that they say is so vital and have an independent bill on it. Let people vote on, you know, health care needs for the elderly or one of the other dozens and dozens of things in there. And they may get some successes because the reality is some of the stuff in this, even Republicans could agree on. Certainly Joe Manchin could agree on it. It failed because it's too much all at once and too expensive in a time that America is not palatable for that. Paul, you're obviously super plugged in with your former colleagues. You just visited a whole bunch of them down in Washington, D.C., saw your former colleagues in the House of Representatives, and you yourself in your congressional career grappled with big transformative legislation. It was the ACA and the cap and trade bill back when you were in Congress that hit a couple of snags and road bumps and seeming end of the road moments. So what are your you know, the current crop of members of Congress doing right now inside those Democratic cloakrooms? What are they thinking and what should they be thinking? How should they handle this moment? Well, inside the cloakroom, they're uh, eating hot dogs and egg salad sandwiches as fast as they can, because nothing feeds grief better than food. So they're all trying to come to terms with the big breakup. Joe and Joe, Joe and Joe are are just not a couple anymore. Um, I think everybody's probably uh, also reading the most recent Washington Post little article, which talks about the sticking point or points that seem to torpedo the mansion agreement um, the extension of the child tax credit, and they tried to come to terms, but apparently they didn't. I'm sure everybody is scratching their heads at the blistering, blistering statement from Jen Psaki, something uh, that I have, I think, uh, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a statement quite that harsh by a presidential spokesperson about a an elected official. Um, it, it, it reflected a massive... Uh, peak on the part of the White House, P-I-Q-U-E, peak, about uh, Joe Manchin. So I think 
I think people are probably disappointed. And I'm betting that they're saying, wait a second, let's get uh, Nancy and Joe and Joe and uh, Chuck together behind the scenes and see if we can salvage this there. They understand that unity is really important for Democrats now. And in terms of the size, you know, we're, we're, we're 11 or 12 years down the road from the rescue plan, from the car bailout, from the financial rescue and the health care plan, all of which came in very rapid succession, uh, and, and um, many of which were supposed to be tagged with huge cost. What uh, Joe Biden and Democrats are talking about is making an investment in America's future. And, and Alicia and the Republicans can, can clamor away about the cost of it all. And unfortunately, she may be right in the perception of the American public about the cost, but really it's an investment that's paid for. And uh, the growth that this will bring and what it does for the country um, and the globe is singular. I think the Democrats are going to keep on working. And Schumer says he's going to bring it to the floor for a vote and put Manchin's feet to the fire. So there's a lot of moving parts right now. What do you make of the argument? I'll, I'll just I'll try and sketch it out right now. But I'm sure that members of Congress are thinking this to some degree, that this is a blessing in disguise for Democrats as much as they may be upset right now. And certainly the progressive segment of the party is upset. I mean, could it be that, first of all, what Joe Manchin has done is help them avoid a big political error? As much as we've talked on this show about the fact that economic reality and voter perceptions aren't really lining up. The fact of the matter is that the messaging about inflation is resonating with voters right now. They, this is what is on their mind, and they are connecting the dots, right or wrong, from an economist standpoint. It doesn't matter. They're connecting the dots between spending in Washington and the inflation that they're seeing, the price rises that they're seeing at the grocery store and when they go to the car dealership. So to some degree, is Joe Manchin kind of preventing the Democrats from making a costly misstep and also allowing them to sort of reboil this down to the essentials. You know, we had the progressive policy analyst Ben Ritz on the Great Ideas program uh, about five, six weeks ago, talking about what was then the framework for the Build Back Better bill. And he said, you know what, as much as I like this framework and, you know, I'm bought into it and I'm a progressive and all that, I, I think we're messing this up. I think we should have made it much simpler. It should have been kids and climate just kids and climate, have a, do a couple of simple things for a longer time, make it very clear to the American public what it is. Look, on this show, Alicia Preston, I've kind of made fun of you, Alicia, for calling this bill gobbledygook. But I can't say that you're totally wrong about that because to most real voters, it seems like I don't really understand what this is all about. What the hell is Build Back Better anyway? So what do you make of that? Alicia, what do you think about the idea that, hey, you know what, Dems, you may have just dodged a bullet here. I mean, you're taking ammunition away from, you know, your opponent for television ads come 2022. But here's where your party has been messing up a lot lately. And that's messaging. I mean, the messaging coming out from the Democrats today is only going to further alienate the American public. And let me say why, you know, Bernie Sanders says Manchin doesn't have any guts. Um, the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, I think, said he's not a man of his word. Jen Psaki rebuked him. The American public is picking up on something really important here. And that is the extreme partisan nature that is being demanded of Democrats right now. Now, my party is partisan. 
I didn't think you guys could give us a run for our money on that front, but you yeah, certainly are this morning. It's a race <laughs> to the bottom. It's a race to the bottom, guys, on partisanship. And you've got senators and the White House coming out saying Joe Manchin failed because he should have been beholden to Joe Biden the head of his political party, above the interest of the people of West Virginia. He should have done what a president told him to do, not what the people of West Virginia wanted him to do. That is a huge misstep, and we're not stupid. We hear it. We hear you saying, your job, Joe Manchin, isn't to do what you think is best for the people who elected you. Your job, Joe Manchin, is to do what Joe Biden wants you to do. We hear you loud and clear. So, Paul, I mean, you're, in addition to being just kind of generally plugged in across the spectrum of the party, you, you actually have excellent connections with the progressive segment of the elected leaders in the Democratic Party. And obviously, as Alicia was just alluding to, there's a little bit of a freak out going on right now among the progressive left. Can they get over it? Is this is this fixable? Is this healable. I know it's the Democratic Party, right? So like no one's ever going to be on the same page. But what's your sense? Is this some kind of a fundamental breach in the ability of the party to hang together? Or is there is there a path back to kind of getting people on the same page and moving forward together? The progressives were already off the reservation with Joe Biden. Um, they The disappointment level has already already started to reach a fever pitch months ago. Um, this, if this is a blow to uh, relations in the wings of the party, uh, it's, it's more a coup de grace than anything else um, because it's been building in the Democratic Party and it's been building for a long time. And trying to reconcile the wings and get some unity is, uh, it's, never, it's never easy. Whether this is a final blow, uh, I I don't I don't know, and it depends really on how progressives view um, uh, view Mansion. If they if if they end up saying, look, we get that Joe Biden is fighting for this bill, and while it's not everything, we can ultimately live with the Joe Biden version, and we think that Manchin, who's not really a Democrat, since he's from a Democrat from West Virginia, he's a dino, um, doesn't really even represent the centrist wing of the party. Um, he's an outlier. If they end up saying Manchin's an outlier, then uh, the damage, the political, the internal political damage isn't so, so bad. I want to change gears just a little bit because the other major story toward the end of last week and over the weekend was the revelation about the text messages sent to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in the run up to January 6th and on the day of January 6th. Those text messages from the likes of Donald Trump Jr. and a whole bunch of Fox News personalities show that despite attempts by all of those folks to later downplay the significance of the insurrection on January 6th, they knew full well just how bad this was, how dangerous it was, and who exactly was responsible. This seems to me and to a number of commentators to be the very definition of bad faith. You have all of these Trump defenders coming out and loudly saying, hey, you know, January 6th was the normal tourist visit to the Capitol. And yet, Deep down, they knew exactly what time it was. Before we dig really deep into these new revelations and kind of connecting the dots to other things going on over the weekend, Alicia, what was your initial reaction to these text messages coming to light? I don't want to tell you my initial reaction because it's such a serious situation and I don't want it to be taken wrong, but I laughed. 
I literally just started laughing. It was so ridiculous as far as I was concerned that these people, I mean, Laura Ingram in particular, she didn't give a darn about the people at the Capitol. She actually said, no, it's making us all look bad. Oh, because that's what that's about, Laura, whether you look bad when our capital's being taken over. I mean, it's just it's so out of touch. It's so pandering and patsy to the president. I don't care who it's to specifically, but to anyone, they have no integrity. They've shown that anyone who sent a text that showed concern of any kind and then came out and have pooed it for the last 10 months. You have no integrity. You have no authority to be speaking to me. Um, and, and I did, I just laughed at the preposterousness of it all. And I shook my head and went, and yet there are people that will follow these folks words and shouldn't all integrity and credibility be gone at this point. That is just, that is just such a stellar point. I mean, you have an incident where it later comes to light that 150 police officers were injured. This is either the most or close to the most law enforcement personnel who have been killed or injured on any day since 9-11. And four people died that day, including a protester who was shot. And in the middle of all this, Laura Ingram is worried about herself, about yeah. how she looks and about how her dear leader looks. Just a fantastic point. Paul, I assume you agree with all of that. What jumped out to you? I mean, it's, it's since come to light that then Energy Secretary Rick Perry of the famous, I have three things to tell you, one, two, and oops, I can't remember. Rick Perry seemed to remember pretty darn well, hey, here's a strategy that he texted to Mark Meadows. How about those contested states where Republicans are in control? They just send their own electors and we just say who the president is. I don't care about the Constitution. Is that what jumped out most to you or, or, or what aspect of this really resonated to you? Well, the, the Rick Perry suggestion jumped out because months before January 6th, there were some pretty smart people who were already talking about that as the possible play they were going to make. So I what, seem to it, remember us talking about it on our show. With we Lawrence did Douglas, the average right. college professor. That you see, you're smart. You remember. I I, I don't have any memory anymore. But I knew you like Rick somebody. Perry? Yeah, like Rick. <laughs> number one, number two. What was that guy? Anyway, yeah. I remember that we, had, you know, that it had come up. We actually discussed that and dismissed it. Of course, I mean, we discussed it and dismissed it, but we discussed it as, and it was disgusting. But we discussed it as. Um, a possible play they were going to make. So, so, so that jumped out. Kudos to us for covering the impossibility and insanity that nobody would ever think of before it actually happened. And other than that, I totally agree with Alicia. I, I, it is, it, it, for, I'm a guy who likes to talk. This renders me speechless. It is pretty, it is pretty sad. By the way, speaking of being rendered speechless, just for listeners who don't remember the specific incident with Rick Perry, because it's, it's great. It deserves to be called out. This, he was in the middle of a debate and he said, let's get rid of three federal agencies. Okay. We need to get rid of the department of housing and urban development. We need to get rid of the department of education. And the third one is, I can't remember. Well, you know what agency that was? The one that Trump made him the secretary of the Department of Energy because Donald Trump's entire presidency was a form of gaslighting the American public. Speaking of gaslighting the American public, I am giving myself a little bit of an auto shout out. I don't mean to. I'm not trying to like pump up my own content, but I wrote an article last week and I want to connect a dot here. My article was up on Alternet and I was trying to call out what I called a swift boating attempt 
on Joe Biden. There's been a comparison that's been constant in right-wing media and among certain elected officials out of the Republican Party, where they're trying to say, hey, the fact that we've surpassed the number of COVID deaths in 2021 versus 2020 shows that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are really the same when it comes to COVID. Maybe Donald Trump wasn't so bad. Maybe he was even better. And I go through in my article why that is just asinine, incredibly stupid math. But that's not what bothers me. I don't worry about faults of math or logic. What I worry about is people who for sure know better, like the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, who put out this comparison in the first place. They know better. They know better. And so when you make arguments that are the very definition of bad faith, and you do it knowingly, you you put forward something that you know to be untrue for self-serving political purposes, to me, it just... It connects exactly to what Alicia was just saying about Laura Ingram. By the way, it was I was this many years old, like this year, I first realized that Laura Ingram and Ann Coulter are two different human beings. I did not know that prior to this. And I follow politics for a living. But I mean, this is the definition of bad faith. And what bothers me about it is that it's become part and parcel of our political discourse to offer these kinds of ridiculously bad faith arguments because They intentionally assault our sense of what is real and what is not. That's the point of swift voting someone. That's the point of this assault on Joe Biden. And to me, that's the point of everything we saw out of Fox News personalities in the wake of January 6th, that they were suggesting they knew full well that it was terrible, that it was was a disgusting assault on our country, and they're minimizing it. And they know they know full well. I don't know if that provokes any reaction from either of you, but to me, it feels like it's all of one piece. I, I think anyone who presents an opinion these days, it seems, will use the facts that match their opinion to back them up in that in both political directions. But, you know, real quick, because I know we have to take a break. I think we should talk about the the reality of where we are today versus where we are when COVID first hit the United States. And regardless of who is president, would we be anywhere different? And well, that's I've been honestly, that's part of the point of my article is that, you know, epidemiologists, public health experts, and the leaders of President Trump's own COVID team all agree that we would be somewhere very different, that we could have prevented hundreds of thousands of American deaths. Let me just say that again, because I don't want the number to get lost there hundreds of thousands of American deaths. And so, yes, I I do think we would have been somewhere different. And the, the, the thing that I think would have mattered the most is we know with this oncoming Omicron wave that we, the, the best way to flatten out that wave to protect all of us is if more of us are vaccinated and there are more and more statistics coming out showing there's, there's a direct relationship between the place you live what percentage of the vote Donald Trump got and how many people have died of COVID. And it, it's just it's just a stunning relationship. You can look it up. It's Google it. Look it up. I've, on- I've read a lot about it. And if we had time, I would tell you why I actually disagree with at least the foundation of it. Well, I mean, look, I could see I, I'd like to hear it because, I, I look, I could see an argument. that It's cultural. There's nothing to be done about it. But I would submit to you, I would submit to you that if Donald Trump from the get-go had said, hey, you know what? This is the Trump vaccine. I'm responsible for it. And by the way, go to the Trump store and buy my Trump branded masks. And I'm going to get a cut of that. And I'm going to get a cut of the vaccine. If he had done that, 
we would be in a very different place with all of those Republican voters. We would have higher vaccination rates, more mask wearing, and we'd be in a different place on COVID. So, Alicia, I don't want to step on your argument. Go ahead. What, what were you going to put forward? You know, regardless of who was president when this broke out, 50 percent of the country, we've talked about how polarized and divisive we are. We're going to oppose whatever the president that was in office said or whatever the political leaders of their state said they were going to oppose whatever that was. Donald Trump obviously made mistakes. We, we know for a fact this isn't an opinion. He was not honest with us about the severity. Now, there's some argument to say you didn't want to panic the public. That's a discussion worth having. It's not one I agree with, but, you know, there's something there. But here's the reality. There are those that are going to oppose government just to oppose government. Donald Trump got vaccinated. Donald Trump eventually promoted masks. Donald Trump did a lot of things, and the people who supported him and were his followers still refused to participate in vaccination or mask wearing. Why? Because it is a cultural reality that that sector of the population and most Americans in general don't like being told what to do. We just don't. And that conservative niche in particular doesn't like the government telling them what to do. I'm not sure it would have changed no matter who was president. As a matter of fact, if a Democrat were president, it probably would have been worse than what it was now because you'd have a whole sector who weren't just Trump supporters, but were who were anti-Democrat, who were going to do the same thing. And the roles reversed. It was a different kind of Republican. Democrats were going to oppose and rebuff what he did. And we're here today. Look, this is a global epidemic. This is not a United States problem. It's always going to come here. The Omicron uh, variant comes from South Africa. What were we going to do in the United States other than 100% lockdown a year ago with 100% mandate of vaccination, which wasn't going to happen, we weren't going to stop it from getting here. And as I reflect back, there's been a lot of mistakes by President Trump, by President Biden, by states, by individuals. But would any of it have changed it? I'm just not sure that that's the case. Wait a second. That's, that's, that's not, that's not even, that's, That's leaving me speechless because you've got a president who we now know the president and his administration undermined, undermined all the attempts to deal effectively with the pandemic. They undermined it in every department of their government. They sidelined the scientists. They gave out false information. They misled the public. They told the public not to wait, not to do things that would protect the public's health and safety. From where I sit, President, former President Trump is responsible for the death of thousands and thousands of Americans because of his not only negligent, but apparently purposeful misinformation and bad leadership. This is one of the great tragedies in American history that that nincompoop, the complete evil maniac, the sociopath was leading us at a time of pandemic. He threw out the pandemic plans that were in place. He told people misinformation and he's responsible in my book for thousands of people dying. For you to say, for you to equivalent, for you to see any equivalence between Donald Trump and Joe Biden and the response to pandemic is goes beyond beyond politics, which is one of our shows. But it's absolutely nutty. But Congressman, listen to this. Donald Trump was not the president of the UK, of Australia, of New Zealand, of Italy. I didn't Greece. ask him to be. All I Hold asked on. him to do, all Hear I asked him to do was lead this country. He wasn't the president of any of those nations who are suffering, in some cases, 
far worse than we are. Some, look, I'm a very emotional person, not just about politics, about pretty much everything. I'm a girly girl when it comes to my emotions, but I thought really hard about this one. And if I step back from my emotions, forget the epidemiology expertise, because I'm not talking about that. Look what's in front of me. What's in front of me is this is a global catastrophe, regardless of who is leading each of those other countries. That's just a fact. Maybe the reality is this is something more powerful than we humans, and there's not a leader in the world who can fix it, because so far there isn't. Well, the thing is that I, 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 I can't agree with what you're saying because it feels a little too hand wavy, right? It feels a little too, you know, I, I mean, I, of course, it, it's impossible to argue with the idea that this is something that's bigger than humans because clearly it is, right? It's, it's a global pandemic. But what I do dispute is, therefore, there's nothing that can be done. Because clearly there are things that can be done because first of all, other countries have done a lot better than we have. Second of all, within our own country, different areas have done a lot better. The death rate in counties that voted more than 60% for Donald Trump is three times higher than the rest. And so clearly there's a difference. When you look through the data, states that followed good public health and increased their vaccination rate and did all the other steps, fared much better. Now, I am willing to entertain a discussion about where do you draw the line? When do the ramifications of all of those public health measures become too much and create too much pain, too much economic pain, too much mental health anguish? I, 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 that is a reasonable discussion to have, but it's clearly true from the data that there are differences and there are things that could be done. 53 other countries in the world took steps to have a lockdown back in March, 2020, earlier than we did. If we had managed to lock down just seven days earlier, again, like 53 other countries did. And by the way, the information and, and the urging to do so was in the White House. It was, it was there. And we know for a fact that Donald Trump was aware of it and dismissed it and decided to ignore it and hope that it would all go away. If he had acted just seven days earlier, we would have saved over 100,000 American lives. So I, I, I think that there clearly were unimpeachably, that bad choice of words, missteps from Donald Trump. And I think that leadership does mat matter. But look, let me draw in one other aspect of this discussion, because I, I think there is a connection to something else we were going to talk about on the show today, which is an article in the New York Times, which is getting a ton of attention in Washington, DC and around the country arguing from Tom Edsel, who's an outstanding writer for, for the Times, arguing that our country may have, in his words, gone past the point of no return. He says that when we act, when one party particularly acts to do things like normalize January 6th in order to protect our team, meaning our party, we may just be past saving. So Alicia, just, just to return the point to you, you were actually saying, look, a moment ago, Partisanship is such that we were going to fight about this no matter what, no matter who was in the White House, no matter. And if it had been a Democrat, it would have been worse because the reaction of, hey, anything that comes from the government is, is wrong would have been even more extreme. But I want to treat that as, is that a symptom? Is that something that is, that is a symptom of just how sick our political culture has become? And more important, is it fixable? Is there a way back from that? Or have we gone past a tipping point? 
I don't know. I it, I think it's disgusting. I mean, just to let you know, you know, sometimes it's the little things that really get my ire up. And that'll be when I see a meme someone shares, one of my fellow Republicans who says, you know, Democrats hate you. Are there any people more disgusting than Democrats? Or when Democrats say Republicans hate women. I That level of candor and rhetoric just makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I mean, I grew up in a family where my father was an Irish Catholic Democrat from Lowell. My mom was an English Protestant Republican from Hampton. You could do that then, you know, and, and that was my parents. And we learned from two different aspects of life. Now those two people don't want to sit in the same coffee shop as each other. I don't mean my mom and my dad. I mean, people that fit those demographics. I don't know how we got here, which I guess means I don't know how to go back. Look, I sit here every week with two Democrats and I, I like you both. I consider you friends. I disagree with you a lot. That's why it's fun to do the show. But I respect you both. And I have always felt you respect me. And yet there seems to be this vocal chorus of extremists on the left and the right who just hate you for being on the left and the right. My life is not, even though I do it for a living, my life is literally not consumed that much by partisanship. And I don't know why I would want it to be because it would just really make me angry. The answer is I have no idea how to go back. Paul, what do you think? I mean, I, I, I know we were just talking a week ago about Bob Dole and his promise to be a bridge back to a better past in America. And now, of course, he's passed away. And we all question whether that better past, whether America was ever great enough you know, in the sense that he meant to be made great again, as Donald Trump said, I mean, are we past a point of no return? You know, I think that there are a lot of people in this country, like Alicia, who are Republicans of conscience, um, who are thoughtful, who care about people, who care about their country, who uh, care about their country uh, and more than they care about raw power. Um, who are um, respectful, um, who are emotional, but respectful. Um, you know, I mean, when we, when we go on and on in this show, uh, however we go on, like I did in my last rant, it doesn't mean that we don't like each other and that we're not friends and that we're, you know, I mean, it, Alicia thinks I say nutty things. I think she says nutty things. Matt, you play the reasoned independent. So, I've never said anything wrong before. I, no, never in your life. And that's why <laughs> there are some, you know, I mean, that's, that's the fact that we're doing this show and the way we're doing this show suggests that there is a way back. And if we epitomize it on the show by staying friends and, and, and strenuously advancing our arguments, even emotionally, because disagreement, disagreeing without being disagreeable doesn't always mean not being emotional. Um, but the fact that we then come back the next week and that we stay friends during the week and plan the show and think about it and respect um, each other is an example of the way back. I'm reminded of the old joke, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is one, but the light bulb has to want to change. And I agree with what Paul's saying, but you have to take active measures. It reminds me of something else that Mahatma Gandhi said, which is he hated it when people referred to his approach as passive resistance. He said, there's nothing passive about it. It's nonviolent, but it's not passive. It's very active. 
And I think it's not just going to happen on its own. The, the thing that I think the Edsel piece gets right is that we're past the point of a natural return where we're just in a cycle and then we're going to luck out kind of the way sometimes presidents luck out with the business cycle. It's like, oh, you had a great economy. It's like, yeah, look at all the stuff I did. No, it wasn't what you did. It was, it was the natural business cycle, right? Republicans love that argument because it turns out that the economy, this is weird. It's just true. The economy is invariably over the last 50 or 60 years better under democratic presidents. I'm not saying that Democrats are better. I'm just saying that's the way it's worked out. And Republicans would tell you, maybe you've lucked out with the business cycle. Have you thought about that? I don't think that there's a political cycle that is just going to naturally swing us back to some kind of health. I think it's going to take active resistance. I think it's going to take active measures. And I'm reminded of some of the steps that activists have tried in, for example, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, where they take kids into seeds of peace camps and they have them find common ground by doing things together. To me, I think the biggest problem is that there aren't more, first of all, more people are probably not interested in getting on the radio and doing shows like this. So this solution isn't going to work at scale for the rest of America. But I do think that we have gotten ourselves sorted into little bubbles of communities, both in real life and online. Social media is not our friend in this enterprise of trying to fix America. And so we probably need to actively fix social media and we probably need to find ways to force people from different physical communities with very different cultural and political backgrounds to actually have some meaningful interactions with one another. I think the solution is a national service requirement, kind of a la Israel. I think all young people should have to do two years of service. It could be military, it could be national public service, but I think that's the only way to start to get this rising generation to recognize some humanity in one another and start to fix what ails us. We talked about that when I was a congressman. I mean, we we talked about that with our colleagues. Um, national service is a way of pulling everybody in the country together uh, for a joint enterprise where they can actually make a difference in the country and grow up. Um, uh, it would be, it, it it's probably something that, uh, is sorely, sorely needed. Um, you know, I mean, the social media, uh, I think, it promotes infantile expression, um, something which I am familiar with from my emotional outbursts myself. I understand uh, it feels good, infantile, infantile expression. On the other hand, it doesn't make for a good civic dialogue. So the idea of national service as a requirement for people from very diverse backgrounds to come together for a common enterprise and have to work together um, is a really good idea. So my husband and I discussed this a lot because he's Greek and he, Greece has compulsory service and he did his compulsory service in the Greek army. And I struggle with it because I agree. It's a great idea because everyone learns so much about responsibility and working together and service. Um, and in the military side, it toughens you up a little bit, which this younger generation could use. I struggle with it because I'm always like, I agree. When he makes every point as to why we need him, like, I agree, that's an outcome. I agree, that's an outcome. But America doesn't do that. Uh, I'm, my mind may be changing on this one. It'll take a few more hundred dinners with my husband because he makes a really good argument as someone who was raised in a country with compulsory servants and completed it himself. 
Well, look, Alicia Preston, I think, has come up with a solution that combines all of these threads of discussion together, which is that every American should be compelled to do service in Greece. On that thought, I want to <laughs> yes. know that, that we are airing this show on WKXL on December 21st, the darkest day of the year. I mean that in a physical sense. Hopefully, hopefully, and I'm predicting here because we're recording just a little bit in advance, hopefully in not some kind of a like political or, or social sense. I don't know how much more the rest of us can take. On that note, the other thing about December 21st, <laughs> that it marks the turn toward increasing amounts of light. And Yay! on that theme, I'd like to turn our discussion to a slightly lighter topic. It's still drenched in a fair amount of darkness, but at least it leads us to a more fun discussion. Brett Stevens, another New York Times columnist, albeit a conservative one, wrote in a much discussed column over the weekend that Joe Biden is, not to put too fine a point on it, too old. And that what he should really do is announce he is not running now. So my question to both of you is, and this is the kind of heavier side of the of the of the question of the of the topic, is is he right? Like, is Joe Biden too old? I mean, to, can can we be serious about that? But then I do want to get to the more fun part of the discussion, which is, what would the political dynamics be if Joe Biden were to announce in the next few months, I'm done, I'm a one termer, and would that actually be better for Republicans, for Democrats, and just for everyone? Alicia, what's your take? Yes, Joe Biden is too old. Um, and let me go on the record here. So is Donald Trump come 2024. They're just too old. This serving in your 80s as president stuff is a no-go, no matter who you are. Bad idea. I think it would be great if he did. I think it would be the right thing to do for his party. I think it would be the noble thing so they can start shape. No one can dance running for president while you have a president in office that's of the same party and has only served one term. I think it's the right thing to do for your party. I think it helps Republicans in that it gives us visibility on who the opposition might be, which always helps Republicans and who we want to nominate. So um, I'd like to see President Biden do that because I think it's the right thing for the country. And I think it would at least give give a window a little bit for people on both political sides to know what they should begin to do next. <clears throat> Paul, you're way, way younger than either Donald Trump or Joe Biden. So you're just going to have to serve even from your relatively youthful posture as the, the, the person on this panel with the most insight into that generation. First of all, should Joe Biden <laughs> simply by dint of his age retire, even though it must be hard for you to relate? Oh, unfortunately, it's not that hard for me to relate. Oi, the knees, the shoulder, the greater trichanta. Um, luckily, he doesn't have to walk that far. He's in good shape. He's, you know, smart, smart guy. He's got all his marbles. He's doing a great job. Meanwhile, Kamala says they're not even talking about it. She says, look, we're just busy governing. We got a lot on our plate. We're just busy. We don't even talk about it. Joe and I, me and Joe, uh, I and Joe, uh, we uh, we don't talk about it. So so she's um, doing her darndest to dampen any speculation along the lines that you have suggested. I think it's a lousy idea for Joe Biden to announce anything of the sort now. I think it's lousy for Democrats. It just sets off a food fight before we have time for a food fight. We got enough food fighting going on in the cafeteria without fighting over who's going to succeed Joe Biden um, in 2024. We got to get through 2022. So no, don't say a word, no matter what the right thing or wrong thing is to do. Just, just 
keep on doing what you're doing, would you? Well, look, I can understand where Kamala Harris is coming from because there's no look in politics that's that's worse than, hey, here's a nice looking older gentleman. I'm going to slowly knife him in the back. That that, <laughs> that always plays well. You could do worse. You could throw kids under the under the bus, but uh, older mm, folks, yeah, not right. so good. I will say this: one of my mentors in in politics, uh, but back in grad school is David Gergen, the former presidential advisor, who's actually worked for both Republicans and Democrats, famously for uh, then President Ronald Reagan, uh, succeeded to, he ended up working for Bill Clinton. And one thing that he shared with us that has since become public record, so I don't mind sharing it on this show, although at the time it was not public, was that in the latter stages of Ronald Reagan's presidency, when he had to travel overseas, for example, to the summit with then Soviet Premier Gorbachev in Reykjavik, Iceland, they had to bring the entire contents or a copy thereof of his room back in the White House to his hotel. And they would array it around him so that he would have enough familiarity with his surroundings to not get totally disoriented. And he would frequently struggle to come across coherently until, because of his training as an actor, the camera came on. And actually, Dave Gergen related to me that at one point, President Reagan seemed particularly confused in the run-up to an address. And then he saw himself on the TV monitor, his own image of where he was about to be broadcast. And he said, oh, there he is. And he kind of recognized himself. And when he was in that mode, he could still kind of hold it together. I am not suggesting that oh. kind of that kind of encroaching oh. senescence on the part of our current president. But I, I I do think that that's a real factor that we shy away from. I think we're, we're afraid to insult uh, our elders, as we should be. We should respect our elders. Thank you but very I don't much. Think we should... I, I appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> But I, but I, I, I think we shy away from that kind of discussion at our peril. And to me, the bigger factor is, you know, different generations have different perspectives on the world. And increasingly, you know, I'm not sure how effectively you can lead a country of 350 million Americans, the majority of whom are your grandkids or your great grandkids age. They have just such a different cultural and political and life perspective that's informed by a whole different series of events than yours. And I, I, at a certain point, I just, I just wonder about whether you're truly being representative of the country. Well, you know, we could move to Finland where the 36 year old premier went out dancing and missed the text about COVID and then all would be well. We should elect a 36 year old person to run America. There you go. Paul stole my funny. Oh, I was going to make Paul. the same point. Oh man, man! Why did I'm sorry? I, 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 I'll, I'll reel it back, Alicia. You can say it. No, I'll just. And and there's a funny meme because you mentioned Kamala and um, Joe Biden today, and it's one that made me laugh. It's a little cartoon, and a guy comes home and says to his wife, "It's getting really cold out there." And the wife replies, "It's so cold, it's not even Joe Biden approval numbers. It's down to Kamala Harris level cold." (laughs) 
Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, you can just hear the Democrats on this panel going, "Tis the season to be jolly." La, 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 la. All right, quick programming note for our listeners: this is the last regular order show of the year that we're going to do on Balance of Power. Our next episode is going to be a year-end wrap-up where we hand out awards for various accomplishments or ignoble moments among our political leadership and interesting stories from the year. We'll take note and take stock of everything that has gone on in this very, very forgettable year. But we are, as of today, turning toward the light. I'm Matt Robeson for the Balance of Power Roundtable. We'll see you next week.